0: Hello, it is February 18th, 2016, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscientist a podcast. Today, our guest is Chris Olson. Chris is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Chris's research is aimed at looking at um, drugs of abuse and um, sensation-seeking and sort of similarities and differences in how individual rodents will be activated by uh, drugs of abuse and um, natural rewards. And around the room, so welcome, Chris. Thank you. And around the room, we have Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Gerard Bodwin. Hello and me, your host today, uh, Matt Wannett. So Chris, could you please sort of take us a little background here of why it's potentially interesting to look at similarities and differences in how drugs of abuse potentially you know, change the brain um, or what you know, neural mechanisms are involved with individuals who are working for drugs as opposed to when we're working for natural rewards and sort of take us through sort of similarities and differences and, you know, what is sort of known about that and, you know, why it might be useful to sort of try and be able to identify these similarities and differences, which a lot of your work uh, speaks to.
1: Right, right. So we think of addiction as being a disorder of motivated behavior. I think, you know, it largely expresses itself as a behavioral disorder. So we see distinct patterns that are maladaptive and hurt people and all of these things. And so, really the questions that we're looking at are in regard to, well, how we know that there are similarities in that there are motivated behaviors that are good, such as, you know, eating and finding sexual partners and social interactions and all of these things. And, you know, they promote our survival and happiness, but then there's also disorders of motivations where, um, on one end of the spectrum, there is compulsive drug use. And so the brain is obviously encoding a strong motivational drive to obtain these things. And so an obvious uh, goal of uh, treatment for those who suffer from addiction would be to reduce the motivation to seek drug, right? And so, you know, we think of that as being a pretty simple concept, but how do we do that? How might we do that? And so in order to really try to target the motivation to pursue a drug of abuse without affecting motivation to engage in social interactions or other things, we really need to understand how the brain's motivational system works. And if it is responsive to drugs of abuse in the same types of ways. Do we form memories associated with drug experiences in the same way that we form memories associated with other natural rewards? Because, you know, ideally, we'd like to impinge upon the drug-related constructs without impinging upon normal motivated behavior.
2: So can, can I... It seems to me that the dopamine field just has sort of assumed that dopamine does everything, Mm -hmm. and then that means that everything is the same. Mm -hmm. So dopamine does opiates and amphetamine, which I think, (laughs) what? How could it do both of those things? They're completely different from each other. And nicotine and alcohol and all of that, all drugs of abuse are the same, because they're all dopamine. And then on top of that, food and mountain climbing (laughs) and, uh, you know, Water skiing; those things are all the same joy too, uh, and it's all dopamine. Could that possibly be true? And if it is, isn't it? A, wouldn't that be bad for your agenda for trying to to inhibit one kind of motivation and leave the others alone?
1: Well, sure. So dopamine is something that we have historically focused on, but I, you know, I think it is. It, it's like a shotgun approach, and so of course, work from that, and several other people have really. Nicely shown that that dopamine can drive, for example, vigor to obtain a reward and um, other types of motivated behavior. But I think that our more recent interests are, are trying to get at more selective effects than this. And so, of course, we do know that all of these things can elevate dopamine in regions such as the nucleus accumbens but then what does that dopamine or other neurotransmitters that may be engaged do beyond that? And, and so is, it, is the nature of these increases the same in that we really are getting engagement of a similar population of neurons, just regardless of how that dopamine is elevated, or are there other factors such as um, specificity of inputs that are coincident with that dopamine, or other physiological processes that really parse out individual neurons or microcircuits that might be responsible for encoding specific things like mountain climbing versus crack.
2: So what's the evidence? What's the evidence? Is the, the rush you get from skydiving the same as the rush you get from <laughs> injecting a, a amphetamine?
1: Well, I think the people who enjoy skydiving might say so. Um, you know, that's same mechanism, a, same
2: brain mechanism.
1: Well, there's certainly overlap. I mean, you would certainly um, pin both dopamine and opioid signaling systems um, associated with both of those things. Now, obviously, one insurmountable difference is that there, with drugs of abuse, you get a pharmacological enhancement of these natural signaling mechanisms. And so physiologically, it can be very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve the same level of effect. Um, but I don't think that that means that they can't necessarily be perceived the same. I mean, that's actually, when you're talking of in, about human experiences, that's a very difficult thing to ascertain, right? Because even between different people, you know, for some people, they think cocaine is the best thing in the world, and other people try cocaine once and said it was the worst experience of their life. So uh, especially trying to frame that um, in regards to the human condition is tricky.
2: But then let's stick to it
1: Yeah,
0: so I was going to say, like, trying to get the nice analogy there of uh, saying the sort of sensation seekers, uh, you know, skydivers and things like that. And so you've got a, a really cool animal model where you can look at sort of sensation-seeking in rodents. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, but then also maybe comment on the, the fact that you said, you know, some individuals, you know, humans, end up having a variety of different responses to drugs, where some people really like it, some people don't. Mm-hmm. And wondering if you see sort of that heterogeneity in, in your um, operant procedure. Sorry, mm-hmm. I was loaded.
1: <laughs> well... Well, no, actually, um, it raises a really interesting question, and it's something that we have not yet done. So to date, we have largely either focused on inbred lines of, um, of mice. We have done a little bit of work with sprague dolly rats, so an outbred line. Um, with those animals, we really didn't see much more variance than, um, than the mice. We saw a slightly different performance, could you but describe was, your,
0: your task a little bit? Or oh, probably? sure.
1: I forgot to start there. Yeah, so um, in this task that we call operant sensation-seeking, animals are they're not food-restricted. They are not previously trained. Um, they simply are placed into an operant conditioning chamber. And just like what you would do for self-administration of a drug of abuse or self-administration of food, we deliver, as a primary reinforcer, varied visual and auditory stimuli. And so this consists of flashing lights and an admittedly dull sound, but it does have an auditory component. And importantly, these features are varied with each stimulus presentation. So the animal has no way to predict exactly the nature of the flashing lights um, with Each subsequent presentation. And we have demonstrated that that stimulus variability is an important factor, and we think that this um, adds some value to thinking of this as a novelty-seeking task of kind of a self-administration of a very specific type of stimulus novelty.
0: And so with that, is there a lot of similarities and differences that you've identified? So this is sort of—it's a unique, you know, natural reward, um, well as natural as you can have in an operant box. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a unique natural reward. You know, the animals don't have to be food deprived or um, anything like that. Have you sort of found any sort of similarities in sort of working for this natural reward versus you know working for uh, drug rewards? You know. Uh, it, can you find that there's sort of different, you know, neural mechanisms? Is dopamine involved with both of these, or are there other sort of differences and similarities that could potentially help and inform, you know, as you were saying, about more specific treatment options so that you can reduce the motivation for drug-seeking but not have the effects on natural reward-seeking behaviors?
1: Right, right. So uh, some of the first work we did did focus on a dopamine-based mechanism, first starting with a non-selective antagonist, flupenthixol, and we found really that that flupenthexol would have the same types of effects on self-administration as it would um, on cocaine. So specifically an in- with low doses, it would increase the self-administration um, with higher concentrations. We did start to see locomotor attenuating effects. Um, and then we followed up um, with the dopamine D1 receptor mouse to kind of identify the D1 receptor as, as being a a critical mediator there, and so these D1 knockout mice would self-administer food; however, they would not self-administer the OSS stimuli. So we've we've also followed up. Um, we had similar findings with the mGluR5 receptor, so glutamate receptor that's really highly implicated in addiction, where um, mGluR5 antagonists or negative allosteric modulators can reduce self-administration of a wide variety of drugs of abuse, as well as reduce drug-seeking behavior. We also found that this would selectively reduce operant sensation-seeking and without affecting um, food self-administration. And so it was at this point, yes, the novelty seeking is is a non-drug reward. And so it is unique because there's aside from experience-seeking, there's not necessarily an endogenous need for this type of reward. So even, for example, in animals that are not food-deprived, they do have a natural drive to obtain, for example, a sugar pellet that has a caloric content and is beneficial for their survival. And so we're it is unique in that aspect, but to date, we have not found a, um, a mechanism or a treatment that selectively reduces drug self-administration as compared to operant sensation-seeking.
2: But you can see a dissociation between the circuits because... And we have seen said? a
1: dissociation just in kind of the opposite fashion. So um, in our studies looking at the leptin-deficient OBOB mice, we actually saw that Um, these animals did have a deficiency in the operant sensation-seeking. However, they were perfectly capable of self-administering cocaine, even under a progressive ratio.
0: So if you could speculate for a little bit on this, um, you know, there is the original idea is that, you know, so the novelty seekers are high responders. um, That was an influential idea that these individuals are the ones who are going to be more likely to engage in drug-seeking behavior. And if you speculate, if you could look in sort of, you know, outbred populations, would you predict that there would be, um, you know, a link between the high operant, you know, sensation-seeking animals, and do those, you know, potentially acquire cocaine self-administration faster or, you know, along those lines? Right, right. Do you see an association where this may actually be a sort of a better sort of predictor, um, that, you know, maybe this sort of behavioral-type assay is something that could be ported over into sort of a human-type assay to be able to see, well... Are you more likely uh, to be? A drug? Oh,
1: absolutely! Unfortunately, um, our attempts at getting that funded have not been successful. But um, yeah, one one project that we would really like to do and probably will do at some point is uh, using the heterogeneous heterogeneous stock rats that are um, have a very high degree of uh, genetic variability, and um, in order to look at their um, operant, their OSS performance and cocaine self administration.
0: So, at the end of your talk, you're talking about some, um, using some really cool techniques at being able to sort of identify, um, you're using these, you know, uh, t- tag mice. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you're trying to be able to look at how specific neuronal populations. Are activated by drugs of abuse and also by natural rewards. And you know, what, what sort of, how how this sort of mechanism you you can actually implement these uh, sort of cool techniques in the lab? Sure.
1: So we're taking advantage of what are called tet tag mice that originated in Mark Mayford's lab. And so there's a couple of flavors of them, but we've been working with some of these mice um, because they allow us to tag neurons that are highly active during a particular point in time. And so this is actually defined by um, the use of a reporter that is driven by a CFOS promoter, the CFOS being an immediate early gene. And then we get long-term expression of, um, of a histone protein that's tagged with EGFP. So it has nuclear localization, and it lasts for several weeks. So we can control when to turn that on or off The ability of strong activation um, to tag a cell with this um, EGFP in the nucleus. So we've been using these these, uh, mice to study, to ask the same types of questions. So do we see significant overlap or divergence in actual single cell populations in the mesocortical limbic circuitry that are engaged by drug and non-drug rewards. So our first studies have been using um, cocaine and novelty exposure in some of the TETTAG experiments that's been with um, novel, novel open field and novel object interaction. And then um, some of our other experiments were also using self-administration of cocaine and self-administration of novelty in the form of the operant sensation seeking
0: so are brain regions lighting up are you know do you get you know huge uniform <laughs> activation of brain regions or you know what is the pattern that uh, of expression you look like and you know do you get CFOS all over the brain is it in sort of you know Clusters, or is it in sort of you know dispersed groups of cells? And if you talk about that, it a is
1: quite sparse, which is consistent with other ensemble based studies. So, um, we have been focusing our efforts on looking at prefrontal cortex and nucleus accumbens. And yeah, we don't see we see about five percent of cells that are engaged by most. Um, most stimuli. So something like cocaine may go a bit higher, but um, we, we tend to see about 5% of cells in these regions. Um, in the prefrontal cortex, we see it across pretty much all layers. In the accumbens, there's no obvious patterns. And this is also, there's slightly different studies, but Bruce Hope has also done similar studies looking at ensembles engaged during drug-seeking behaviors And when they've tried to look for cell type specificity within the accumbens or within the prefrontal cortex, they really haven't seen much evidence for cell type specificity. So, for example, in the accumbens, the D1, D2 um, cells were relatively equally um, Mm -hmm. represented. And I believe the CAMK2 alpha positive cells in the cortex were represented about how you would expect them to be based on the population of those cells relative to other cells um, in the cortex. So we have also not seen any obvious um, differences in cell types. I there, I suspect there may be something there that may be just more difficult to find, but um, at least using the traditional markers of different cell types. Um, People really haven't seen much. Do uh, dopamine cells actually light up the cells? Well, we have not looked in the VTA, oh, honestly. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if we've sectioned those brains that far back.
2: Okay. Because for the, the difference between rewards, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call them, thrills, mm-hmm. maybe, is the right word, there are only a few possibilities, right? I mean, they could be represented as different cells in the <clears throat> cortex, different cells in the nucleus accumbens, or different cells in the VTA, right. or all of the above, or some combination of those.
1: Right, right. So, realistically speaking, I'd say from a from the standpoint of... So, let's use the experience of novelty-seeking as an example. So, if you think about that, that complete experience, so pursuing in novelty-seeking and... Experiencing the, you know, whatever positive benefit an individual gets from that experience, you know, there's there's many individual components to that. So there's the approach behavior, there's the subjective effects. So I think if you consider that entire experience, then I think your all of the above question is probably mo- most appropriate. But there's pretty substantial evidence, at least in regards to drug seeking and even expression, for example, of a fear memory, that individual ensembles, consisting of a very small population of neurons, a lot of times 10% or 5% or less, um, within a specific brain region is functionally um, sufficient, Well, I should say that inhibiting activity of a small population of cells in a specific brain regions is oftentimes sufficient to block the expression of that experience it doesn't mean it, it's blocking the entire experience itself but at least you know as far as we can observe in learning paradigms you can block the expression of a learned behavior often by targeting a small number of cells in a very discrete brain region.
2: Well, how about, then, dopamine cells? I mean, why wouldn't well, dopamine cells also do something like this and and <clears throat> only you know, 5% of dopamine cells are enough to represent similar ones? Well, I, I have
1: really been focusing downstream of the dopamine cells, and one of those reasons is that especially... With the pharmacological effects of dopamine, you are are likely to at least enhance release and potentially um, you know stimulate activity of a large number of those cells because of the pharmacological nature of the stimulus. And so, if we consider cocaine itself, we are artificially or well, we are selecting probably a very large ensemble due to the effects of uh, on the dopamine transporter and other monoamine transporters on those cells. Now, of course, that's a consideration downstream as well, because with a drug like cocaine, with co- a drug like cocaine, we're also producing a flood of neurotransmitter, which is not necessarily going to be localized to specific. Synapses, but um, yeah, the short answer is we haven't really looked. But the longer answer is that we are really working under the assumption that those are a those cells are a direct molecular target of cocaine.
2: So it sounds like you're thinking about something like a sort of a footlight mechanism, where the dopamine lights up every actor on the stage, and <laughs> only the actors doing something get attention. Right, so right. Maybe dopamine has no an effect on the neurons that aren't actually engaged in this,
1: and that's pretty consistent with striatal circuitry in general. Is that dopamine can kind of modulate the glutamatergic inputs and really shape responses to those inputs, and so you know we think of a brain region like the nucleus accumbens as getting relevant cortical and other inputs and that those inputs could also be shaped by the tone of dopamine coming in.
2: So if I were just to then imagine a mechanism like that, I would guess I would look across the nucleus accumbens, and I would see 95% of the cells <laughs> are doing nothing, mm-hmm. and getting no glutamate input, and therefore dopamine wasn't modulating anything. And then 5% of the cells are actually engaged in this particular task at this moment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of glutamate on them, and dopamine can modulate that. Is that... The kind of, I mean, I know maybe you're not well, trying to think about it exactly those kind of terms, but is that the kind of image you have? Or how
1: that is that kind of, of the image we have, and um, at least when using Fos as a reporter, if you don't have distinct external stimuli paired with a drug like cocaine, you actually, especially with that initial injection, you don't have a profound Fos response. In, in the striatum. And in fact, we um, routinely see a lack of fos response in the nucleus accumbens. And part of that may be due to technical region, reasons, such as us doing these studies during um, the dark phase of the animal's period. But really, you do recruit many more cells within the nucleus accumbens when cocaine is paired with, for example, a novel environment or at least a distinct uh, drug-associated environment.
2: I see, so so the it does suggest... So cfos requires dopamine as well as the... It is...
1: It, input. Yes. It, in the stridum, it is largely gated by, for example, MAP kinase activation. So uh, PKA activation is not sufficient. Um, so... Really, dopamine engagement of those cells is not thought itself to be sufficient. It may promote CFOS expression.
2: So your ensemble tagging is not just neurons that were active necessarily, but they were neurons that were active in coordination with some dopamine signal. Is that that fair to say? Sure,
0: sure. So is that potentially a good therapeutic angle that you could take? So the the Bruce Hope study using the, the Dano Mm -hmm. Um, Have they done follow-up? Could we port this over to humans in a way? Where (laughs) if we just get rid of the cells, if it's just a small proportion of the cells, Uh and we get rid of those can you magically get rid of your drug-seeking behavior and would the individual still be able to exhibit some normal reward-seeking behavior? Like, is that is that... Uh, you just
2: suppress them. You just, just mean suppress them, not do it Yeah, them. yeah, we don't need <laughs> to do that. Yeah. We don't, <laughs> we we don't need to do the Dono killing. But, no, no.
0: Uh, no, no, well,
1: <laughs> but actually, I mean, that brings up a hilarious point because um, I actually spoke with Bruce not too long ago, and he said that he has had someone approach him about clinical trials of... Well. Deleting of, cell? of deleting cells using the exact mechanism he uses. So specifically, gene therapy in humans to express beta galactosidase to then inject the prodrug to then ablate cells that were engaged
2: for treatment for what? For
1: treatment for addiction.
2: In like because a this
1: person, well, he he made. I <laughs> I certainly wasn't there. This is you know I I probably shouldn't speak too much on this, but the individual he was referring to said that this, their experience in human clinical trials was that things of that nature can be put through when the disease is bad enough to be considered terminal, even with a disease such oh, as terminal. addiction, terminal or potentially addiction. Terminal. terminal. I guess the question is, though, so you, you had an excellent experiment in your talk where the CFOS positive cells were then silenced and that seemed to prevent drug seeking. So on the one hand, this is like really good evidence that CFOS in fact actually does do something because at least Mm -hmm. those (laughs) cells, you do need those cells, right? But then I guess the question is if you put them into a novel situation requiring different motor movements to obtain the
0: drug, would they then not be blocked?
1: So I know you're not looking at my grant, but you're starting to read parts of it off. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no, that's exactly the types of of questions that we're interested in. Because, you know, as you're aware, a lot of the models that are used, um, so for example, where we are tagging cocaine self-administration neurons and affecting self-administration of um, or OSS, um, it is a different task, but each of these is it's own very distinct task in a very distinct context. And so it's um, in its current form and in many lab models' current form, they are under very specific conditions. And so I think that raises an excellent question. And it really speaks to, you know, in an ideal world, we would be able to generalize to drug seeking, right So you can envision someone with a lot of different drug experiences. they have discrete experiences and we know that discrete environments can actually act as triggers, triggers right so but ideally a, a, a therapeutic would not say, oh, if I see a you know a yellow chair and a guy in green shorts that's kind of skeevy, you know, that I remember doing cocaine with one time, you know, an ideal drug therapeutic wouldn't selectively target the, that memory and, and any behavioral consequences, but would instead be able to reduce the kind of interoceptive feelings or, you know, the actual drive that's triggered by Whatever the trigger is, boils so well, down, down to what your little tr-
2: ensemble of neurons in, 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 right. is representing. Yes, is it representing that particular moment, or is it representing some more abstract thing? And you're right. hoping that it represents. You some want more to abstract, go abstract, thing. yeah. And but so, there's a lot of a lot of people's ideas about what the nucleus accumbens does and get that's, into the mix.
1: Right, right. We're also looking at cortical areas and then um, it either, it in it regards to being more... <laughs> <Just people have laughs> well, more, it does.
2: More, they have more certainty about what they think cortical areas do than they do. <laughs> <it in> the
1: <laughs> well, that's true, but we'll <laughs> test the assumptions yeah. and see what happens. <laughs> so is there any...
0: like? Has anybody looked at looking at all of the neurons that are then activated, you know, the CFOS activated, are they receiving similar input? I mean, because... You know, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that, you know, these small population of neurons that is distributed all throughout, you know, is there a, a central regulator or is something, you know, maybe it's norepinephrine or something like that, you know, some broad based, you right. know, molecule. What is the, is there any speculation as to maybe there is some central bit or are these neurons in some ways connected to each other? You right. know, it, like monosynaptic, disynaptic, like, is there something special about these neurons that are activated? Are they... Um, that sort of defines this, you know, because clearly you said there were no sort of cell, you know simple markers that you, you find, but is there some sort of anatomical connectivity that could potentially explain this ensemble?
1: Right, right. You know, I think the closest to an answer that I've seen is from Sheena Jocelyn's group, and so they have done a series of studies to show that if you bias individual neurons towards being sitting at a slightly depolarized resting potential. They are more likely to become recruited into an, a memory based ensemble. And so they've actually, uh, through many elegant experiments, um, some of the originals a bit more artificial than the, than the latter's, but um, really by doing things like overexpressing Krebs in a small population of neurons. Um, and overexpressing other things that would change the membrane potential in such a way to let it sit a little bit more depolarized, that seems to be almost like a magnet. So at a particular point in time, these cells seem to be specifically um, amenable to, f- to becoming part of an ensemble. So the other
0: sort of theoretical argument about this is that is the CFOS, is this the perfect indicator of the ensemble like are we missing neurons <laughs> that may also be playing a role here where you oh, know maybe sure. the ensemble that's lighting up is just telling you you know this is the guy with the yellow shirt and the green shorts mm-hmm. but maybe you know you've got sub activation that's happening that that is the general um sort of memory ensemble that you want to target and oh is there any way to sort of be able to tease that apart you know what is is there sub-threshold neurons that are also
1: popular? oh i suspect there are although i mean there are very interesting experiments from like Tonegawa's group and other groups who, who have really worked on inhibiting ensembles that are tagged using CFOS as an activity dependent marker. So there's, I mean, I, I could argue many sides of this but I, would, I will say that there is good evidence that by using CFOS as a marker to tag these cells and then functionally inhibit them, you can get behavioral consequences, whereas silencing a similar number of neurons in the same brain region that are not part of that ensemble does not have that effect. But I also recognize, you know, this is, this is one technique of doing something that addresses a really big question. So, of course, I think CFOS has validity in that when you isolate cells that are, that are positive for CFOS, and so a lot of this is, is Bruce Hope's work and others, but you'll see that those same cells also express much higher levels of other immediate early genes, Um, So at least validation across other other members of that family. Um, But I think what you're doing is you're selecting the, probably selecting the most highly active neurons and during a particular point in time, and those neurons are likely to be engaged in such a way to have transcriptional changes probably resulting in plasticity. And we do know that the immediate early genes are involved in neuroplastic processes. So we are selecting for this group of cells that is important, but of course it's still going to be important to do things like single unit recordings. And I certainly think that if you were to record cells within a CFOS-tagged ensemble, And if you could do single unit recordings outside of that ensemble, you would probably still also see, you know, stimulus-specific encoding that wouldn't necessarily be predicted by the CFOS-based ensemble. So let's say you tagged an ensemble by presenting an animal with chocolate or something very specific and maybe paired it with a, a tone. Under the same conditions, you would expect reactivation of those same cells, and that those types of experiments have been demonstrated. But I think if you were to also take single unit recordings of those cells and other cells, I can't imagine that none of the non-ensemble cells have any type of encoding associated with that stimulus. So I, I think Certainly there is information missing, but I think these techniques have also really helped us understand a lot about learning, memory, and addiction. Cool.
0: Well, I think that's about it for today. So thank you for joining us for Neuroscientist Talk Shop.
1: All right. Thank you.